Hey everybody, real quick, I just wanted to let you know about a free digital conference this Thursday, Best Practices in Live Ops. We've got a lot of great speakers, including from companies such as Riot, Tilting Point, Merca, Zynga, and Miniclip. We've got leads from games such as Words with Friends from 8-Ball Pool and Valorant. There are going to be a lot of great discussions, including things like user journeys, lessons learned operating uh, League of Legends, for example. And it should be a really fantastic uh, digital conference. So check that out. You can go to liveops.splashthat.com. Also link in the show notes and sponsored by our good friends, App Annie, and of course, Iron Source. So please do check that out. And we will be right back after this uh, commercial, short, this short commercial break. So stay tuned. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great game business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's game growth platform to turn their amazing games into amazing game businesses. Now, when it comes to content, these guys don't mess around. You may have heard of the Level Up podcast and Medium blog, which feature game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. Head to ironsource.com to learn more. That's www.ironsrc.com. Thanks. Folks, most mobile advertisers are increasingly aware of the dangers of app install fraud. In fact, global financial exposure to app install fraud in the first half of 2020 was $1.6 billion. And even though the mobile ad industry has grown exponentially to defend itself properly against ad fraud, the potential amount of damage is still extremely high and fraudsters will always want a piece of that pie. Now, fraud methods are constantly evolving and adapting to solutions in the market. Still, staying protected and applying sophisticated anti-fraud solutions are very much a necessity for all marketers. As you all know, our good partner AppSlyer offers super robust fraud protection, making sure you're not paying for that bogus traffic. AppSlyer is also perhaps the best attribution platform on mobile a true foundation for your marketing tech stack, giving you all the tools to drive that marketing success. And listen, it's not only us at here at Deconstructor of Fun raving about AppsLiar. Playrix, Tencent, Playtica, Square Enix, Huge Games, all of these companies and many more are using AppsLiar to boost their business. So go to appsflyer.com and get yourself attribution and fraud protection you can trust. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to Twig98. We've got myself, Joe Kim, Eric Kress, Adam Telfer, and a special guest, the smarter Eric, Eric Sufert. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. And today we are going to be talking about four articles. First, Facebook has abandoned the IDFA and may kill fan for iOS. What's next for mobile measurement by Eric Sufert from his blog, The Mobile Dev Memo. Second, Unity's IP numbers look pretty unreal by TechCrunch. Third, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War costs $69.99 for next-gen consoles by Polygon. And finally, The Risks of Market Research by our friend Lloyd Melnick from his personal blog. All right, guys. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. <laughs> Everyone's doing well, I think. Everyone's a little tired this morning and a little mm -hmm. bit out of it. Eric Seifert looks like he got punched in the face or something. Because yeah, I'm, I'm I'm doing well, but I I guess I, I don't look like I'm doing well. You look fine, <laughs> according according to you all. And Joseph Kim's internet is uh, on dial up or something, so we may have some issues with him. And Adam's yeah. in Canada, so no one cares. Moving yeah, no. on. Yeah. 
updates. Uh, first one, Avengers. So Avengers actually just announced their MTX plans. Uh, it's a games as a service hero brawler thing. And effectively what they're going to be doing is that every single character that they launch post-launch will be free, but every DLC character launch will come with a $10 battle pass that you can complete, which actually has no time limit. Um, from my perspective, this is about as player friendly as you can get because you can think like every single one of these cosmetics is all coming in a battle pass and there's no time pressure to complete them. Each one of these things are optional. So I, I don't really understand why they decided with this model. Um, and even despite them going about as player friendly as they can, they still get a ton of hate online, especially because of Spider-Man, but also because of this cosmetic thing. Um, likely this is just gonna translate into low live revenue, especially because um, I think I've got a lot of concerns around your ability to sustain their MAU post-launch, but we'll see. Um, and also just to trigger Eric. Oh my God, I just read this now. <laughs> Unbelievable. Deutsche Telekom is entering the cloud gaming market. They believe they can build the Stadia killer named Magenta Gaming. <laughs> Even the name is bad. What is going on? Are people idiots? <laughs> uh, it's promising about 100 games. I'm not sure what they are, but 100 of them. Uh, low latency and coordinated end-to-end -end experience. Um, I don't know. Okay, so first of all, when it has like 5G in the name or something, which I saw in the article, I know it's a fail because have you seen some of the real-world tests on 5G around the globe? It is yep. pathetic. It is pathetic. It's not going. It's not going to live up to anybody's expectation. And the U.S. is the worst. Like the throughput on the U.S. is is something like like only like. Uh, like 1.8 times like 4g speeds in the u.s and so it's just it's going to be forever before this gets to be a viable thing and i guess that's exactly what deutsche telecom is trying to do is trying to push the the the, the reason for having 5g at all right because there are no use cases for 5g except for freaking gaming on <laughs> from the cloud and no one wants to game from the cloud so it's all a circular circle circle jerk with these guys and they're spending gazillions of dollars doing it it's kind of amazing anyway what's uh, next next bit of news ricardo zaccone is left king after 17 years uh, we announced this because it was actually talked about may 2019 um but of course um had an amazing reign at king um and uh sad to see him go but um, well, well he stepped down as ceo right? yeah he stepped down. down yeah he stepped down as ceo and was became chairman and now he's just Move, moving on right that's kind yeah. of yeah, that was he, he was but he was totally my understanding that was was that he totally stepped away from kind of like day-to-day -day activities um even before they kind of announced uh that he was uh leaving the ceo position um nice. oh really okay yeah but if because he'd been at i mean king is an old company i mean he, they had been through a lot of ups and downs with that yeah, company yeah. i can understand wanting to <laughs> do something else I mean, they had done like a down round when they were uh, pivoting into Facebook games. And it was, uh, that must have been, uh, that, I mean, that must have been kind of like a, a challenging, you know, 15 year uh, uh, career chapter. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, he um, got paid. But he so, got paid. <laughs> he's doing well now. Um, so there was Gamescom and there was a whole bunch of, what was it called? Like the, the first night live thing where they were announcing a whole bunch of games. The only thing that popped up on my radar was Insomniac's Ratchet and Clank game. Um, it's using SSD speed on the PS5 to actually drive like world changes. Like you can actually change completely where you and your characters are going to completely new environments. It's seemingly without any load time. Um, it looks like a complete PS5 exclusive. 
Am I right, Eric? There's no like fine print Spider-Man. I have been told very specifically that of all the games that Sony is making, the only PS5 exclusive that is planned is Horizon. So I've been this told this one that- actually could come to PS4, even though the whole gimmick is using the SSD. I know, and that's why I, I, I I'm hesitating to say this, but 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 because of how much they're marketing it this way, because we we still don't know about Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man is still, everyone considers a PS5 exclusive, which it is not. Um, and if it is, if they actually do that, then they are pulling the PS4 SKU because the PS4 SKU exists. So I don't know about the Ratchet and Clank, I'll be honest, and the way they're marketing it, I think they would have a lot of egg on their face if they were to give this, put this out on PS4. But every time I even look at these real-time loading bullshit, right, I, I still think that it's... Can you couldn't do that on a PS4? I mean, I don't know, dude. Not at the speed, right? Like, I don't know if you played Destiny on PS4. <laughs> the yeah, goddamn long loading yeah, time. Yeah, but, but the difference is you're loading. I mixed it with the the 4K version, but still. But my understanding is the oh right right yeah the, the, my understanding though with uh, Destiny is is most of, part of the reason or most of the reason is the <laughs> fact that you're loading a lot more than just the level that you're going into because and that's why they're going to pull out different worlds out of the game and 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 kind of um you know mothball them or something for the next season but anyway that's all that we're getting into tangent moving but on it's, it's this game is supposed to be in the launch window for the ps5 they didn't actually give a date they just said launch window yeah. who knows how big that window is i'm assuming spring 2021 yeah it's it's generally through march april depending you know the definitions yeah. but but it looks good that's fine um also like in terms of trying to expand their units like Okay, they're they're also doubling down on PC. Sony is. What did um, I so, say? What did I say, Adam? Yeah, all the fanboys <laughs> crying uh, in them. Not within the release window, so I'm not expecting Ratchet and Clank coming to PC in 2021. Uh, but it looks like they're doubling down on on like building off of Horizon Zero Dawn success there. So I picked that up. I really enjoyed it. God of War, hopefully coming next, and hopefully they'll bring Bloodborne to PC. I'd really enjoy that. Um, so Epic versus Apple, we were actually chatting about this before we started recording. Um, so Judge has now prevented Unreal Engine and any developer you know, using the Unreal Engine from getting blocked on uh, Apple, but it did allow Apple to pull the Epic, um, basically like a dev, um, whatever, dev, dev tag, whatever, completely from the store. So Fortnite is no longer downloadable. Um, none of the Epic games are downloadable. Um, and now that season four has actually started, it's pretty much unplayable. Um, so I think Eric, you wanted to chat a little bit about the, the Epic the Apple thing here. I mean, we, oh. we just, oh, we had a huge, oh, I thought you said about Eric K. All right. We just had a big podcast with two lawyers that actually know what they're talking about, uh, more so than I do. Um, and it's, I thought it went really well and, and it's really interesting to see what next is. And I'm not going to spoil anything, but I think they do come with their, you know, expectations of what they think will happen. Um, and I just I do want to say though that that Apple pulling didn't I say this last week I can't remember but Apple pulling uh, the engine away from all the different publishers on that was such a dick move you know like and it was and the judge basically said as such is like that was a ridiculous thing because that basically put everyone else um, you know they, they went after everybody else all the all the partners and stuff and so again I think that shows where Apple is in terms of our in the gaming ecosystem. Um, anyway, Seifert, do you have anything that you wanted to say about it? Well, no, I mean, we were having a discussion kind of around in the broader context of just Apple as like a monopoly, uh, by the sort of oh, like right. standard definition of what a monopoly is. Right. And that's a, that's a just discussion that <laughs> is much broader than 
any one podcast. But I mean, just I would like to hear just from the panel. My so my sense is that Epic is not going to win here. They're going to have to eat crow. They're going to have to republish Fortnite without their own proprietary payment. Does anybody think Apple can win here or Epic can win? Epic, sorry, let me clarify. Does anybody think Epic can win here in a way that looks like they have their proprietary payments in Fortnite on on iOS? So I think. Oh, go ahead, we Joe. We do talk about that, but I think that my theory. So this is. You know, this is just my speculation. I think that Epic might actually have a trick up their sleeve. So that's what I think they're going for. Right. And I'm not, I don't want to spoil this podcast that we did, but I would say that after talking to these guys, I think something could happen more so than I thought before talking to these guys. Um, but I, I would definitely, re this is, listen to the podcast, it goes through the whole thing. But, um, Again, the only thing that podcasts didn't do and I wish we had done early is to, to kind of describe what monopolistic behavior is and um, and the 70% market share type thing happens. And at the end of the day, it's all defined by what how you define the market. If you define it as Apple ecosystem, then sure, they're a monopolistic power. But if you talk about all mobile, they are certainly not, right? So um, anyway, I wish we had gone into that a little bit more in, in the podcast, but I recommend everyone to listen to it because I thought it was interesting. So that's a good teaser for your podcast, just to promote uh, myself. Uh, I wrote an article up about that around like kind of t taking taking that kind of uh, uh, perspective called Three Arguments Against Apple Antitrust Accusations. So if people want to. Wait, wait um, when did you write uh, that? I didn't see that. That's in, I wrote that in June. That was pre, that was like, I published that the day of WWDC. So it got like zero hits. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> I'll add a link to that article in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in checking that out, go ahead and click through the show notes. And I've got a few updates myself. First update, congrats to venture capital firm Bitcraft who raised 165 million for a new fund. In a sign of the current times, their fund was oversubscribed from their original target of $125 million. So good luck to those guys. And just have to say, if the money's there, definitely seems like increasing target raise would generally be a good idea. Anyway, next update. Second update, Unity is launching a distribution platform for devs to reach Android users beyond Google Play. The platform called Unity Distribution Portal was actually launched last year and available then but now is launching globally. So Unity believes the market for alternative app stores will continue to increase. And certainly for some markets like in China, those markets are particularly fragmented. Third update, Gamescom was awarded. That's what the, the article said that Unity believes that. I don't know where they got that. But Do they have any according data? To the, yeah, like, like outside of China, is there actually any data that people are moving to alternate app stores? Not that I know of. That's right. wishful thinking, dude. They're doing their IPO, man. They, okay. They'll throw anything out there to try to get some press, you know? Okay. Uh, this, this, they can't build distribution portals for Google. That's insane. In the US and Europe, that's not gonna happen. I mean, am I crazy here? Anyway, go ahead. But the, the functionality is there in Unity, so. Anyway, third update, Gamescom awarded the best RPG award to Cyberpunk 2077. There seemed to be a bit of confusion though, especially on Twitter, because as we all know, the game has not yet been released. On top of that confusion, CD Projekt Red on Twitter then tweeted they wanted to give the award to Fall Guys. 
Anyway, seems like a bit of confusion on this, but based on Twitter comments, sounds like maybe the Gamescom people actually were able to play the game before deciding on the award. But anyway, it was a little confusing and a little weird. I don't know how that typically works. Dude, that whole story yeah. is weird. First of all, if that all game is not an RPG. That's not that. an RPG at all, <laughs> right? And you're right, the game's not out. They can't get an award for game not out. They can't get a benefit of being delayed like eight times. That's ridiculous. All right, final update. Ubisoft agreed to remove the raised fist imagery from the opening of its new mobile game, Tom Clancy's Elite Squad, after lots of criticism. In that game, there is a clear insinuation that sets up the Black Lives Matter movement to be characterized as a terrorist organization. I thought this was really weird. I don't know if you guys checked out the trailer, but I, you got to think there's something going on with Ubisoft, their culture and their politics. It, this was just bizarre. But anyway, just an open offer for me. If you are an Ubisoft employee and want to get the hell out of there, DM me. I will help you get out of Ubisoft. Are you just trying, is this like a self-serving thing? You're just trying to poach people from Ubisoft? I'm going to help you find a job at my startup. No, but <laughs> how can you, like, I would hate to be an employee there personally. It's just, it's just bizarre. No, I, I agree. Anyway. This elite squad thing is complete. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? But anyways, let's move on. Okay, people, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsor, Beta Hat, and then we will be right back. So stay tuned. I want to talk about consumer insights. Honestly, I've always had issue with consumer insights. I questioned the value and felt that CI was always somewhat disconnected from the real world. The big issue with CI firms is they don't hire people that know anything about video games and therefore don't have a fundamental understanding of what matters in this business. That's why I like Beta Hat. Beta Hat knows the business of video games and understands how to connect consumer insights to the real world. And Beta Hat helps you understand your customers, understand not only what they do, but why. They specialize in customer segmentations, brand tracking, messaging and positioning, pricing and skew planning, and playtesting through qualitative and quantitative research. There are about 10 people in this industry that I rely upon to understand trends. And one of them is Stan Kwan, the CEO of Beta Hat. Beta Hat is the best CI team in the industry. Go to betahatmr.com for more information. That's betahatmr.com. Welcome back from the commercial break, and let's start the news. All right, so kicking off the news, we want to start with Eric Sufert's Mobile Dev Memo article. Eric, could you walk us through uh, what you wrote about? Smart Eric? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I won't provide the whole kind of uh, background on the IDFA deprecation stuff just because anybody who's uh, at all interested in it is probably like totally up to date and anybody who's not interested in it at all and just doesn't want to hear it. But basically, I mean, the, the revelation that came out last week was that Facebook kind of is, is fully leaning into the, to the SK ad network framework that Apple, um, Apple updated at WWDC to kind of accommodate this IDFA deprecation. And they're not, they're not going to rely on any kind of workarounds um, to sort of maintain the, the status quo, right? So if you think about what's the status quo on Facebook, well, the status quo is Facebook has built a gigantic um, bank of profiles of, of every, every app user on mobile, right? On, on iOS and Android separately, but, um, and they know how much you spent uh, in, in apps and how, how, how often you engage in apps and, 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 you know, what your sort of like usage profile looks like, because almost every single app, especially any app that advertises, but, but which is, you know, a lot of the vast majority of them, but let's say it's like a preponderance of them 
uh, have the Facebook SDK integrated. And even those that don't advertise have the Facebook SDK integrated just for analytics purposes um, or for single sign-on. So the universe of apps that has the SDK integrated is probably something like, I don't know, if I had to guess, like 75, 80%. And they all just sort of like transmit events back to Facebook, right, in real time. Um, and so Facebook has just used that and all those, all those events being indexed by the IDFA to sort of uh, build usage profiles of, let's call it every single mobile user, right? And so, that, so that I think the belief was when Apple announced this, that you know, there, was a, there, was, there was a reason to be optimistic, right? That Facebook had um, enough data and they had enough machinery to, to get around this, to, to find uh, a workaround that allowed them to basically retain the same kind of identity that the IDFA provided um, without needing the IDFA. Um, and so that they'd still be able to kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, anchor these, this event stream to something and, and they'd still be able to aggregate these events with, uh, uh, against their Facebook user IDs and, and maintain that sort of bank of profiles. And what they said was that we are abandoning the IDFA completely, right? So not only are we, do we not have a workaround, um, but we're not even going to use the IDFA. If people opt in on iOS 14, we're not going to use the IDFA for them. Like we're just moving away from the IDFA completely. Um, and then also, this is going to be so painful uh, for our own, uh, you know, third-party ad-serving ad platform, which is called Facebook Audience Network, that we might have to shut it down. And that is going to, and that that pain um, is going to sort of like percolate down into the uh, into this sort of publisher ecosystem and hurt people that make money via selling ads in their apps, right? So that was kind of the announcement, um, and and the sort of repercussions of that are that you know. Well, one, any sort of reason for optimism, you know, is people are just should be totally disabused of that. Like if Facebook can't figure it out, no one's going to. Uh, two, uh, you know, if you rely heavily on FAN for ad monetization, which a lot of a lot of games do. Right. So, I mean, I, I did a poll on Mobile Dev Memo and I asked, you know, how much of your if you if you make money from ads in your games, how much how much what percentage of your revenue uh, of your ad revenue is that? And people were saying, you know, it's between 20 and 40 percent. Um, so man. that's that's going to be painful for a lot of people. Uh, and, and, you know, three, it's just that, you know, the, the, the entire sort of like um, efficiency calculus of all mobile UA as a result, you know, just, just kind of taking the Facebook kind of announcement as a proxy for what everyone's going to do is, is going to degrade, right? And so basically mobile UA is just going to be much less efficient um, and it will be sort of driven by the SK ad network framework, which just doesn't deliver a whole lot of, of, uh, of insight. So it's pretty, it was pretty like you have to, it's deep inside baseball and there's a lot of subtext. Um, but when you sort of break it down and actually I did that today, I posted today like an analysis. I just went almost line by line because um, they published an advertiser fact FAQ right after they published blog posts. So I just went line by line through the FAQ and like, what does this mean? Or how do I, how do I interpret this? Um, but it's like very deep inside baseball. But like when you break it down, uh, it is basically, um, a, 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 an admission that yes, this we have no sort of workaround, and this this is as extreme as anyone um, had kind of postulated. Okay, Eric, the smart Eric. Um, this is just okay. The, what is the meta here? Like, what are they doing? Like, are they basically just capitulating, or are they basically just going after Apple because they're not re removing this fan thing for Google at, at this time, right? So it still exists. The same type of system exists on Google. 
Yeah, well, yeah, so this would be for iOS. Like they, they said, we might have to shut down FAN for iOS, but for so, Google, it'll stay in place. So, ra so rather, okay, so rather than doing any type of workarounds or trying to figure this out, they're just pulling it all together. This seems like just a big fuck you to Apple too, right? This is like, we're gonna, we're going after you, like you're going after us type thing. Like, it seems like Facebook is pissed off. Is that? Well, yeah, I mean, from what I've heard, they're extremely pissed off. I mean, they're pissed off about this just happening in general. And then they're really pissed off about, I mean, I don't know if you all saw um, the brouhaha a couple weeks ago about um, there's a setting in iOS 14 where it's a separate setting apart from the LAT setting. And it's not um, impacted by the, the opt-in pop-up, but Apple has its own kind of opt-out setting for its own ads personalization, right? So they kind of carved that out. And so someone someone surfaced that on the mobile dev memo Slack and I, I tweeted about it. and um and then so like a couple of journalists picked it up and apparently like apple just would not respond to, they would not respond to any sort of like inquiries they were like just really cagey about it um and so there's not a whole lot of clarity around what it means so what what one of the articles that kind of picked it up and ran with it claimed and i can't corroborate this but they claim that apple has its own proprietary device identifier and that has always existed in ios but that was like basically retired and so they resurrected it for the purposes of doing device-based ads personalization um, that is not kind of subject to the opt-out. So that they basically have their own parallel identifier that no one else can access that they use for, for aggregating uh, basically data around the device ID. Now, I can't, I can't corroborate that. That's what- Yeah, but, the, but that, again, yeah. that goes against their core strategy, right? Of trying to protect user privacy, right? They wouldn't have a backdoor that people could find out about ultimately that would eliminate their, you know, their privacy brigade or whatever the, what do you, crusade, I mean. Well, I mean, it, I, it, it would for everybody but them, right? I, but I don't think privacy was ever one of the core motivators here. I, I, just, I just genuinely don't. Oh, really? Okay, you disagree with that. That's not what I heard. No, I, I think it was one of them, but I think, you know, we talked about this in the podcast I did here a couple months ago or weeks ago. Um, I think the, the main motivator was to take back control of sort of app store distribution, right? Which they had lost to Facebook and Google. Those platforms control app distribution, right? That's how people find and discover apps is through ads. And I think, and A, I think Apple wanted to take that control back, that editorial control. B, I just think they wanted to disempower Facebook. Um, I think this, this is kind of a big power struggle. And I think that's how Facebook's interpreting it. Now, I think a big, um, uh, I think one of the, the sort of like subtexts of the blog post they published was that they're launching a PR campaign directed at Apple, they're sort of dogpiling on the antitrust argument. Um, and they've, 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 since the blog post went live, they've published a couple of different interviews, Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, Apple is overreached here, uh, it's hurting publishers, uh, it's right. not acting in publishers' best interests. Okay, yeah, all right. So it's basically two sides of the same coin, right? It's a battle against the big Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, Google, blah, 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 blah. And then it's also in, shrouded in this idea of consumer privacy you know, they're going after the bigs. That's kind of where I'm at on it. And also, Eric, can, in, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask in terms of like, so moving forward in terms of performance marketing on iOS, it sounds like the next big wave is probabilistic attribution. Could you comment on that? Is that the new world order starting with iOS 14? Mm, no. Well, it depends on how you define that, right? So there's a couple of different definitions that are floating around. One of them is just like basically fingerprinting based. Uh, attribution, which is well, a non-starter. Yeah, it's a non-starter, right, right. right? And I think yeah. some of the ad tech companies are are promoting that right now, but it's 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 not going to happen. 
Um, the other right. one is is just using sort of like behavioral profiles to try to intuit which ad platform a user was like delivered by. So like, hey, this user is behaving like a Facebook user, so they probably came from Facebook. I don't think that is going to work either. I just don't think you have enough. I don't think there's enough differentiation between the, the player behavior, the user behaviors, um, right. based on the network source. I don't. I, I I genuinely don't believe in that. I think honestly, I think the way forward is what Facebook is doing, which is it's just full utilization of the SK ad network framework, right? You get, you get some data back, right? You get a post back back that can, can include a conversion value, which is mapped to an in-app event or an in-app state or in-app, you know, sort of user profile. So, um, you yeah. know, profile meaning behaviors that they've done that are anonymized. So I think that feels like the, the way forward. I don't think that any of these, when you try to get more and more clever about um, trying to specifically identify and classify individual users, uh, yeah. you, you end up just, you, you get, you end up just getting closer and closer to random. And I think that's going to be true in this case. Okay. And one of the questions so you had already written about the potential for ad revenue loss. And I think the the media has picked up on this 50% loss, you know, or yeah. 50% ad revenue decrease, which I, I think a lot of the people have been reporting about. Could you talk about that? And then also, what do you expect the impact on Facebook's ad revenue to be? Yeah. Well, it's loss? funny because so the 50%, idea that was from a white paper that facebook published like two weeks before wwdc and i think they probably regret that now um because they were just talking about how their their sort of personalization engine kind of accounts for 50 percent of the cpms that publishers see on fan right so if you're published if you're if you're uh if you're using ads if you're sorry if you're using fan to serve ads in your app then 50 yeah. percent of that cpm that you you received um, is is sort of it made possible by Facebook's uh, ads personalization engine that it uses all of its whole data set for right like the data set that it collects from you know basically all the ads that are, all the apps that have Facebook SDK integrated then and you know it aggregates around you know these different user profiles all that goes to benefit to the benefit of you as an FAN publisher so that they published that like a couple weeks before at WWC that's a little bit different right than saying. Facebook loses 50% of its CPMs on its owned and operated apps because Facebook has a whole lot more sort of uh, transparency around your, um, you know, sort of your your behaviors and and uh, and the context on its owned and operated apps than it does in these third-party apps that use Fan to monetize. So I think um, I said that you could take that 50%. Like so, when you're thinking about so Fan, I think everyone always kind of assumed Fan was just going to be shut down. I mean, because if they lose all of the targeting ability, um, you know, for like the 80% of people, whoever that opt out, then fan is just not really that viable anymore. And so I think this was like, this is them kind of, I heard this phrase the other day, uh, Eric, you'll like this. I feel like it's a Wall Street phrase. It's cutting sleeves off a of vest, right? It's, uh, it's not, uh, you're not actually losing anything, but you're, you know, you're being very dramatic um, about, uh, about the fact that you potentially might shutter it, right? Um, so anyway, so I think everyone assumed fan was going to go away and that, that's revenue that would be lost. Um, now the own and operate stuff, I think you take that 50% kind of um, efficiency and you cut that maybe in half or you cut that down by like two thirds. Like you don't lose 50%, you lose maybe 15, right? Percent efficiency or maybe 20. It's not half. Um, and then, you know, and then it only applies to iOS, right? So then it's, that's maybe like iOS is maybe 60% of revenue, right? So there's this whole sort of, series of filters that you go through to kind of interpret how this impacts your, your revenue. And I think I did a, I did a kind of back of the envelope estimate in the mobile dev memo Slack the other day. 
And I think I, ca I came to the conclusion that it would be about a 7% drop by, and so that, and there's also like a trail off period because you still have some effectiveness of the data. The data doesn't immediately come, it become invalid on day one, right? The data, you still know that, hey, user X has spent a lot of money in apps in the last three months. It's just that, you know, you're not getting any new events, right? And so that data sort of degrade, the power of that data degrades over time. And then in the meantime, they're working, you know, furiously on building new tech that does all of this kind of like from a probabilistic approach. And so that becomes more valuable. So there's kind of like a, I call it burn out and burn in, right? So if you think about like, when are they going to hit the peak impact of, on revenue? It's probably end of Q1. Um, and what could that be? And I estimated it would be like basically a 7% drop from Q2 2020, right? So if you, if you figure like, a, if let's say that top line revenue stays the same, which it won't, it would have been about a 7% drop right, in revenues at peak. And then it would sort of, it would be less than that, you know, heading into that peak, and then it would be less than that kind of leaving that peak. Got it. Um, and this week you also tweeted about a potential delay to the actual pop-up for IDFA. Do you think that's actually gonna be likely? And does that actually mean like a full delay of the SKAD network, or is that only just like a portion of this? Oh man, now we're going into, uh into the spicy rumors um yeah no that was that was related to to specifically to the privacy uh privacy new privacy guidelines right so the ios 14 would launch on time and sk ad network likely likely gets rolled out on time the 2.0 but that apple would provide a grace period of like six months is what i've heard that for compliance with the opt-in and for access to idfa uh to be taken away as a result it would be about a six month basically a six month um you know, uh, uh, learning period and, um, which to me, I, I think that they should do that. I mean, I don't think it looks weak. Right. I mean, I think they, um, you know, they basically detonated a bomb in the middle of a quarantine. Right. And, uh, and they didn't give people a whole lot of, I mean, cause WWDC was delayed. Right. So we didn't even get the sort of normal amount of time to prepare for an SDK, uh, or a, an iOS update. And this one was a lot more extreme, um, you know, than the, the previous ones have been, especially with just like removing functionality. So my sense is that would be a good thing to do. Um, now, I mean, yeah, the rumor I heard um, came from some pretty credible sources and supposedly if it's true, it gets kind of confirmed this week. So if it doesn't get confirmed this week, then, you know, it's probably not happening. We'll see, but I think they should do it. All right. Okay, just moving on to the next article. Unity's IPO numbers look pretty unreal. So according to TechCrunch, Unity's IP numbers, quote, look pretty strong, end quote, despite losing 54.2 million on 351.3 million of revenue for the first six months of 2020. In 2019, the company lost about $160 million on $540 million in revenue. And in 2018, the company lost about 132 million on about 380 million in revenue. As of June of this year, Unity had total assets valued at 1.29 million, about 450 million dollars in cash. TechCrunch is arguing that increasing revenue and narrowing losses are really good signs. Further, they note that 53% of the top 1,000 mobile games on Apple and 50% of top games on Google Play were made with Unity. And some of these top titles being made with Unity publicly are Nintendo's Mario Kart Tour, Mantic's Pokemon Go, and Activision's Call of Duty Mobile. So the last investment round valued the company at $6 billion, and they raised $525 million at that time. 
There's a lot more detail where you can find out more about the company if you dig through their S1 filing, but that's probably better for another discussion on a separate podcast. But um, what do you guys think? Eric Kress, I know you probably have some strong opinions here. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I'll have to be probably likely covering this company when it when and if it goes public. Uh, but my whole take on Unity just from the get-go is that it, it, it's far better of an acquisition candidate than it is an IPO candidate. But I think from a macro sense, given the market and how valuable a lot of these trading, uh, these publicly traded companies are, it's like a huge opportunity for them to get out to see what the market will bear, I suppose. So I just kind of look things from an opportunities and risk perspective, and then I can kind of give you my real opinion. But like from an opportunities perspective, the revenue growth is amazing, right? I mean, it looks pretty solid, 60% from the operating solutions category and 35% from the creative solutions category, one being... The creative solutions is basically engines and licenses and operating solutions is primarily advertising. Uh, the other thing is it's a very small offering. So only a hundred million, uh, which will lead to likely oversubscription. And I think well, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, then they're also planning on expanding into other areas like augmented reality, architecture, auto, healthcare, et cetera, which is interesting. They have some partnership with Autodesk, which could help them on the, um, acquisition side, customer acquisition side. And the other, the best news that I saw on it was that net retention is really strong, right? So they keep their users and customers who are buying a hundred million or a hundred thousand dollars of last stuff last year are, are doing about 140, which is really, really good and solid. Now the risks, <laughs> the problem with this company is that majority of their growth has been driven by advertising, right? And so advertising is at a huge risk with this, these changes to Apple and potential changes at Google. And what's really fishy about the whole thing is they basically buried the biggest revenue contributor in the operating solutions line item, which makes no sense except for they wanted to obfuscate it so they don't that people aren't going to be paying attention to it going forward so that they can change it with something else. This is kind of my conspiracy theory here. Um, and the other big thing that people may or may not understand is that it is so expensive to build sales forces to execute against different verticals. Video games are very relatively simple vertical, right? With uh, obviously tons of publishers, but they they built that over like the last decade, right? But going into things like auto and healthcare and anything else is su super expensive, particularly in San Francisco. Those sell these fail Salesforce people are so expensive. So what's very likely is they will not make any money on these new verticals anytime soon. They'll just be a lo loss leading proposition. So that that's a big challenge. Um, and then they also back to advertising, I bet they're booking net. So like any change in advertising is going to go straight to the bottom line. It's going to increase their operating losses, which is a huge potential, uh, 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 headwind in general. And the other one is, uh, my JR, John Riccatello had this, uh, me too lawsuit that happened, which seems to be put under the, um, you know, has been swept under the rug to some degree. I think she got paid out. And ironically, he's engaged to be married to the chief people officer from CUNY. Who does that, right? Who, out of all people to be dating in the company, the chief people officer is the last one that you should be dating, right? She should know better, right? So anyway, they are evidently engaged to be married. So there's that going on. So anyway, I, I, I guess my thinking is here is that why are they only doing $100 million, right? $100 million on a $6 billion company is 2% of the shares trading, which makes the float very, very small and very, very challenging. And I think it's probably likely to see what the, what the, what the market will bear uh, so that some of the bigger shareholders can get out, right? Um, 
I would have guessed again that they would have been sold to someone like Autodesk or Adobe or something like that, but that seems to be not happening. Um, <clears throat> so, Eric, what do you think? Uh, do you think they were just kind of going through their motions, assuming that they were going to get picked off? And there, there have been rumors floating around about not, not just about Adobe or whatever, but more around Google and actually even Facebook. Yeah, no, Facebook. Yeah, that was that was a rumor a while ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I just don't. Yeah, I mean, at their I, so I'm getting out of my element here because I don't really know exactly what the, <clears throat> excuse me, what the what the rounds were, but I'm sure these big investors that are basically own this thing at a six billion dollar valuation are looking for some liquidity, a way of getting money out of this thing. Um, but when you're losing that much money on your core asset, which is video games, uh, and the market's not really growing for video games as it used to be, um, I think it's going to be a challenge to get to those levels and that valuation. Uh, what's really interesting is if I were to guess what's going to happen is if they do get out, $100 million is so small, the float's so small, this thing is going to pop. But as soon as the the shareholders are able to sell, they're going to sell and it's just going to drop like a stone. And only if they can really execute against their their plans and their and their, and their forecasts will the stock be able to be maintained. Um, so it just, it, do, it doesn't look like there's a lot of prospects now. I'm, I'm sure uh, IR people at them at that company will, will say differently, but we'll see. I, I, I don't I don't see much hope for this, but that's just me. But I don't and know. what do you think about the timing? Do you think they might have rushed given the the more recent potential implications against Unreal? I mean, that's kind yeah, of gone away now. Do you think they, yeah, they I, I I don't think that's a real. I mean, it could be that from a PR perspective they did that, but no, I I, I don't I doubt that had any. Uh, so to be clear, I don't think this battle with Epic and Apple is going to have any impact on their business per se. People are going to move to their um, engine just because Epic is have a, having a tiff with Apple. I, I think, first of all, it would have it would be years from now that they would see any impact from that. Um, uh, so most of the games that are in development already have their engine chosen. So, all right, moving on. All right, Call of Duty, Black Ops, Cold War costs $70 for next-gen consoles. So clearly, I did not, well, I did not, not expect this, but I, I did not expect this to be a, a trend. But so, so anyway, so what, what they're doing is basically kind of the same thing as NBA. They're offering the cross-gen SKU for $70, the current-gen SKU for $60, the Ultimate Edition for $90, and the PC version, thank the Lord, is going to be $60. <laughs> because they get 100% margin on the PC version, and that's the one I will buy if I buy it. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised that they're doing this, given the success of Modern Warfare. I kind of would expect them to do the Razor Razor Blade model, where keep the price as low as possible to keep people engaged with the content. Um, I do think this game is going to be down pretty significantly from last year, like 20 to 25%. Um, because of the quality and also because of uh, you know the popularity of Modern Warfare. Um, so I guess the more broader thing for me is what does this mean going forward? Do other people react and do the same thing? And it's looking, again, more and more likely that next-gen SKUs may be at $70, and I could be wrong. I mean, this auto-upgrade feature may um, exist in this transition period, per se. But now, now I'm thinking out loud. Again, I'm going to say the same thing I said last time. Because Microsoft and Sony are supporting the auto upgrade feature, it's going to be challenging to get away with the $70 price point. Having said that, oh, later in the cycle, I think the $70 price, $70 price point may stick um, if, if Activision is doing it. Likely others will follow. So we shall see uh, what happens. 
but uh, nonetheless, um, you know, seventy dollars for next gen SKU, fine, right? I think the people that are buying the next gen consoles are gonna will pay that, and I think they also are doing the same thing Take Two did in, in the sense is that they're trying to upgrade them to the ninety dollar version. Uh, Adam, yeah, um, but I think you're right. Actually, the the big thing that's slowing all of this transition down, if next gen is going to be seventy dollars is Sony and Microsoft's auto upgrade functions. Because in this case, I think Activision and 2K both have to basically build up their own upgrade systems in order to actually facilitate this, right? Because Sony and Microsoft's out of box basically say, you have to have the same price cross-generation and it has to be that way forever, um, which really prevents anybody who's trying to do this cross-generational pricing um, you know, from utilizing their systems. They have to build their own, which means they have to build their own like um, single sign-on, they have to actually build a system to be able to move players between those generations. That's a it's a big undertaking. Yeah, and I, but now come actually now you brought that point up. And I was thinking about this is that this was a strategy for them previously where they are pushing people to register with their systems yep. so that they have the ability to reach out to them directly, right? So they didn't have that capability forever until like a few years ago. Um, so anyway, that may be part of the strategy as well. Yeah, definitely. Anybody who wants to take advantage of any SKU above the $60, right? Like you want to play on PS4, then upgrade to PS5. You've got to sign up for their service. You've got to give them your email, um, which of course is a pretty big benefit for them. Yeah. What, what, what percentage of people, so like just thinking about Call of Duty specifically, um, get engaged with the multiplayer aspect of it? Because my sense is like, do they leave money on the table by making the SKU so expensive, but then... Uh, not monetizing the battle pass for people that obviously never never yeah. buy it? Well, so historically, they've never really monetized all that well on a relative basis. So the premium SKU is far more of a revenue contributor than the microtransactions or the map packs or whatever else it was. They actually really underperformed the market in terms of transaction, transactions historically. However, with Warzone <laughs> and this new one, like they're crushing it, right? So that calculus could be changed in you know over the next few years, but but I'm going to let Adam go from here because I'm going to say the same thing he's going to say I think. But yeah, um, because like it, just what happened last year, right? They launched Warzone, which is the free to play version of yeah. just the battle royale mode, which has done an amazing job of not only you know driving live revenue and DLC and MTX revenue, it's also done a pretty good job of upselling people from Warzone to the full game, right? Because now there's actually a free to play. Uh, entry point and the only difference that they did was that they didn't launch warzone until what was it april march of last year which gave enough of a release window that at least the upfront 60 dollars wasn't at risk but that's really the big issue this year and it's going to be really interesting to see is like there's no way they're going to shut down warzone right like warzone is absolutely crushing it amazing momentum so now all of a sudden you have a call of duty version that's out there built by infinity ward that is free to play and it's going up against their own game which is built by Treyarch this Cold War version right um, which I think is really going to be fueling that 20 to 25 percent down from last year uh, a lot of the upfront sales aren't going to come from it so instead really they should be funneling as much as they can into Warzone into the free-to-play game to build up that momentum the problem is just like this is really challenging their model because Infinity Ward and Treyarch build different games they actually have completely different gun feel in both those two games and running completely different engines so they might try to use warzone to kind of uplift cold war as best as they can like theme warzone you know pull players from it but it's actually built on two completely different engines there's not a lot they what can what engine is a cold war built on treyarchs proprietary 
Oh, it's, no, it's no, like no, no, completely different. Right, God, right. No, that's true. No, yeah. it's well, it was Sledgehammer's engine. There were evidently three engines across the three platforms, and they tried to consolidate on the Treyarch engine, but the Sledgehammer guys moved to the Treyarch. They shut that down, and then they and they moved to Treyarch, and Treyarch either built it on existing engines or some kind of hobbling of it. But the the point of the more story is Modern Warfare was done by Infinity War, which is on a different engine, as far as I understand it. So the other challenge here from like a, from a market perspective is that Cold War is not a popular theater, not at all. Like Vietnam has no residents. It, it barely, it wasn't a popular war in the US, but it's super <laughs> not popular in Europe, right? So that's, that's a tough one. I mean, battling Russians is always popular, I suppose. I think that that actually doesn't hurt them all that much, but anything in jungles and Vietnam, Korea or whatever else they're gonna do, whatever, that's not no bueno, um, generally speaking. And then they also had to rush this game because they inherited it from Sledgehammer, which caused a lot of problems. And and no one's even played this game yet. Like the reveal was actually very, very light in terms mm -hmm. of, of, of content, given the fact that this game is coming out in like a couple months and should be like gold master in the, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll see, I, 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 again, I think the quality is gonna be bad and I think it's gonna be really challenged to move people from Modern War. It'll be very interesting to watch the fall. Yeah, it will be. And I could be wrong. This is going to be a real testimony to uh, their ability to execute against this sort of thing and to see what free to play, what impact free-to-play has on traditional packaged goods because it's going head-to-head. -head. Yep. And then, sorry, and then the last thing is they had COVID, right? So a lot of these upgrades in Modern Warfare success was based upon everyone was at home, right? So like right, everyone yeah. was training this. So the bull case here, and this is what Activision is saying, is like, look, we have like, 50, 60 million people that played this came out of nowhere and started playing Warzone. We're going to sell into that audience with our new content and it's going to be rosy, right? That's kind of their pitch. And that may be, you know, that, that's what we're going to have to see to see what happens. But I, I don't think that it works that way, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but at least um, if they say selling Cold War content on top of it, it's not like they're selling in cosmetics. It's not like they're inflating that economy. They're just trying to upsell to that. Like they're basically taking out what they would be upselling to modern warfare which they know is working and now trying to upsell to the cold one um but yeah let's move on to the next article okay so the fourth article is the risks of market research by our friend Lloyd melnick on his personal blog um so he wrote this excellent article which is really about um, market research and its place in product strategy why it's important to me is because i end up working a lot with say concept or pre-production games very early in its production and uh, typically, the higher the budget of that idea, the more likely there is a push to do market research to prove that there's a market that exists for the game and ask market research to actually validate a creative idea as early as possible. And I think this is really where you get into a lot of problems. Um, the summary of Lloyd's points, number one, consumer market research is based on the assumption that humans are rational when they actually answer these surveys and that people answer truthfully when this is actually fundamentally incorrect. Um, he points to a lot of references where they've studied this. And the reality is that a minority of cons consumer research respondents actually answer truthfully. Um, part of that is just, you know, them trying to ask for reasons behind their behaviors and players actually don't really know. So when you're asking gamers why they quit a game or what feature they like best within the game, common market research will say, you know, story, graphics, IP, when actually we know from behavior and tracking that this is not the case, right? Um, actually, compulsive progression is the biggest reason why they come back. But this is the reality when you ask players these types of questions. 
Um, and assuming market research is then right, can actually push you down a path of optimizing for the wrong content. Um, what players say they like, but by behavior actually doesn't matter. So the issue is that people really aren't conscious about how they make decisions. And in fact, when answering, it's more likely to bring out their self-rationalizing internal messaging instead of their true self. So Lloyd's recommendation, and I completely agree, is instead of asking players, test from players, right? So Lloyd refers to A-B testing, multi-arm testing, which is great. And I think it's fine for live games, especially say Social Casino, which he works in, where you know you try out a new slot machine within an app. Sure, that makes sense. Do an A-B test of that. But typically when we're talking about like pre-production and concept phase, they don't have that luxury. So, you know, soft launching, great, but then we're talking about late in production cost. User research is probably the best tool you have for pre-production style games, which is actually testing players' real reaction, right? Like identifying real player reactions to your concept and whether the signals are there for actual sustained engagement in a strong business case. Um, so not asking them, did you have fun, but looking for signals of fun to actually um, see that they actually mentally map the entire system and that they can see how the system actually expands. So looking for real human reactions to a real concept. Um, and I just believe that this really kind of highlights a major issue where a lot of companies will invest a lot in consumer market or consumer research. But the reality is, is that there's no panacea for market validation of a creative industry. Joe? Yeah, I think this is a good topic because in my personal experience, I feel like in just based upon people that I talk to, there's just so many bad tests that are executed and actually acted upon in the game industry like every year. So on top of some of the problems that Lloyd mentioned, I think some other problems are one that there's some fundamentally bad assumption that's made that. And for example, it could be time frame, right? So like if you're testing... Uh, a sale, for example, but you don't have a long enough time window, then you could be pulling revenue forward. But just the notion of like there being some bad assumption in the testing. Secondly, the test itself. So for example, if you ask a bunch of detailed questions about game feedback in, in for example, incentivized offer wall survey for gems, you're basically just going to get a bunch of really bad inputs because you know the, the users and the way that you're testing is just fundamentally flawed. And third could be you're just testing for the wrong things. And we, we saw an example of that when we talked about um, how Amazon conducted testing for Crucible, where they had specific assumptions, but also were just testing very incremental feedback on essentially like a zero to one type of new game design, but they were asking very incremental type questions. But anyway, I definitely think it's a good topic, one that I think we're going to continue to just see lots of mistakes about in the future. And... Yeah, maybe it's, it might. This might be an area where it's good to actually t uh, bring some folks in to do a separate podcast on. But yeah, it, it's definitely uh, worth worth reading if you haven't read it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to bring on somebody who's who's got good stories, like positive stories of using consumer research to drive product strategy, uh, to really counter this. Just because, at least in my experience. I just haven't had that many positive experiences with consumer research. You know, I, I, I we've I, I've talked about this many times. You know, Stan Kwan is a, you know, a friend of mine who, who does uh, Beta Hat, which I think he does a, a really good job and kind of understands this issue pretty. Um, and what I worry about though, is these bigger firms, which I won't mention, just don't have the right personnel to actually you know, interpret the data that they're looking at. Um, because at the end of the day, the, 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 these type of surveys work really well with non-free-to-play. When you talk about packaged goods, I don't think it's actually that bad. I think they do 
uh, find what's appealing to the audience. But free to play, the behavior is far more important than the features. And I think they don't do a good job of actually looking at behavior. So I would just say that find the right people that kind of understand this business and they've done this business before that can differentiate between free to play and, and, and packaged goods. And, uh, but I will say that's the primary problem scenario, right? So you've basically got some big wig exec that used to work at Microsoft and used to testing at, you know, one of these bigger, like a Microsoft or Amazon or whatever, they come into the games industry and then like for a new game design or something like that, they'll run this battery of tests with all of these people and get like 50 million inputs from a bunch of different people. And that all those external inputs from a bunch of random folks in the industry are used as the basis of a new game design or something like that. And it almost always leads to bad decisions, bad mistakes. On that positive note, I think that's it. there's any other comments from you guys? Fix your internet, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right i think that's all it right, guys bye Catch you guys later. bye